Uh, I'm a note taker. Maybe maybe you are as well. So I encourage you to have a piece of paper and a pen handy to jot down some notes along the way as we continue our message series looking at the life of Paul. Today is part five of that message series, and I'm calling today's message The First Christians. The First Christians. Well, last Sunday we focused on the first three years of Paul's Christian life. Uh, after he committed his life to Jesus Christ, uh, he was baptized immediately, and he's, as he was coming up out of that river in Damascus, uh, he immediately connected with Christians and began going into the synagogues and proclaiming Jesus as not only the Son of God, but as the Christ, the promised Messiah. And then very soon after that, he went into the Arabian desert for the better part of three years. And we spent some time on this last week talking about how Jesus Christ spent that better part of three years meeting one-on-one with Jesus Christ. Uh, It was Jesus's uh, world changer boot camp for the Apostle Paul. He was preparing him to change the world. And we saw that even though he would be martyred for his faith just 30 years later, it was critical that he spend several years at the feet of Jesus being equipped and trained and prepared for the ministry that was ahead. Even though he would only have 30 years to write half the books of the New Testament and become the most influential Christian leader of the next 2,000 years. Jesus Christ felt the most important thing for him to do would be to prepare by spending one-on-one time at his feet. Well, as you read through the Bible, you'll discover that there are many different locations for God's world changer boot camp. But more times than not, as you read through Scripture, it seems that God prefers to prepare his world changers somewhere in the desert. It's kind of interesting. We find that with Moses. We find that with John the Baptist. We find it with the Apostle Paul and with many, many others. Now, God doesn't always hold his boot camps in the exact same desert, but it seems that more times than not, he chooses some desert to spend one-on-one time with that person, that man or that woman, in order to prepare them for their best work for serving God. Jesus Christ does some of his best work in the desert. So do you suppose maybe God is is telling you something today? I think he is. Let's be honest with each other. Most of us listening to this broadcast live in the high desert. And a lot of us don't really like it. You know, I hear complaints fairly often. The summers are too hot. The winters are too cold. In the springtime, it's too darn windy. And I look out over the desert, and it's nothing but brown. Sometimes we complain about this desert we live in, right? But never forget, God does some of his best work equipping his saints in the desert. I want to share this with you. Jesus Christ has placed you here in the desert for a reason. He is revealing himself to you. He is teaching you how to follow him better. And he is preparing you to make a greater impact in our world for Jesus Christ. Can you receive that today? I think that's a powerful word the Lord has for you. 
Well, after Paul escaped from Damascus in a basket, you remember that from Acts chapter 9, they wanted to kill him, so some of uh, the other Christians in Damascus lowered him through a window in the wall of that city. Uh, He was lowered in that basket, and then we know that Paul spent the better part of the next seven years away from the limelight. And then we pick up in Acts chapter 11, where we'll be placing our focus today. So I I do want you to turn in your Bibles there to Acts chapter 11. We're going to pick up here in a moment in verse 19. And we're going to see what happens after this first 10-year period in Paul's Christian life. So the first three years, most of that time he was out in the Arabian desert, one-on-one with Jesus. The next seven years... He was in Damascus and a few other regions there outside of Israel, doing a lot of preaching, but also continuing to be prepared by Christ for the work ahead. And then we pick up in Acts chapter 11, beginning here in verse 19. Here we go. I'll be reading out of the New International Version. Now, those who had been scattered by the persecution in connection with Stephen traveled as far as Phoenicia, Cyprus, and Antioch, telling the message only to Jews. Some of them, however, men from Cyprus and Cyrene, went to Antioch and began to speak to Greeks also, telling them the good news about the Lord Jesus. The Lord's hand was with them, and a great number of people believed and turned to the Lord. Now this passage here in Acts chapter 11 marks a pivotal moment in the life of the early church. At the end of Acts 7, remember, Stephen became the first Christian martyr. And do you remember what city Stephen was martyred in? Some of you probably remember he was martyred in the city of Jerusalem. Since the day of Pentecost that's recorded for us there in Acts chapter 2, probably a year or two had passed. And Jerusalem had become the launch pad of Christianity. Jesus had been crucified in Jerusalem. Jesus had risen from the dead in Jerusalem. And all 12 of the apostles lived in and led the church in Jerusalem. But in Acts chapter 8 verse 1, we read that on the heels of Stephen's martyrdom, a great persecution broke out against the church at Jerusalem. And all except the apostles were scattered throughout Judea and Samaria. Those who had been scattered preached the word wherever they went. It's pretty remarkable when you think about it. The great persecution that broke out against the Christian church in Jerusalem was led by none other than Saul of Tarsus. He was the main reason several thousand Christians fled Jerusalem and took the gospel throughout Judea and Samaria. But his plan to wipe out Christianity and keep it from spreading backfired, didn't it? It accomplished the exact opposite effect that Saul of Tarsus had hoped for. The persecution actually helped Christianity spread just like Jesus had planned for it to spread. And according to Acts chapter 11, verse 1, some followers of Christ spread the gospel hundreds of miles away in Phoenicia, in Cyprus, and in Antioch of Syria. Now, I want to put a map on the screen for you. Antioch in Syria is about 300 miles north of the city of Jerusalem. 
And so when this persecution broke out in Acts chapter 8, verse 1, these Christians dispersed from Jerusalem. Some went into Phoenicia, and that's perhaps eh, maybe a 100 miles away from Jerusalem. And then they dispersed over to the island of Cyprus out there in the Mediterranean. Others dispersed as far north as Antioch, 300 miles away. And so this dispersion that took place helped to spread the gospel in an amazing, amazing way. Now, Antioch was an interesting city. It had been founded about 300 B.C. by Alexander the Great's general by the name of Seleucus I Nicator. In fact, he named the city after his dad, Antiochus. Isn't that sweet? He named that city after his dad. Well, a little secret that some people don't know, this guy Antiochus uh, that uh, had the city named after him, his son Seleucus named the city after him, Seleucus founded a lot of cities. And he had this penchant for his dad's name. He named over a dozen cities the exact same name, Antioch. And so I'm thinking either Seleucus was really fond of his dad or he was in really hot water with his dad. Maybe he'd been one hellion of a child and he was making up for lost time by naming all these cities after dear old dad. Whatever it was, there were over a dozen cities named Antioch. And so when you come across that name Antioch in the New Testament, uh, you have to first ask yourself, which Antioch is it talking about? So Antioch here that Acts 11 is talking about is called Antioch of Syria. Sometimes it's also called uh, Antioch, and I had it written down here somewhere. I forget where I put it. Anyways, it was named Antioch of the river that ran through that city. And so it was a very important city. You had to specify which Antioch was being talked about. Uh, Antioch was actually the third largest city in the Roman Empire. It had around 500,000 residents. Only Rome and Alexandria had larger populations. And the city of Antioch was beautiful. I want you to listen to how Warren Wearsby describes this city of Antioch in, in, in Syria. And by the way, that river I couldn't remember the name of. It was the Orontes River. So sometimes this Antioch was referred to Antioch of the Orontes. But this is how Warren Wearsby describes the city of Antioch in Syria in Paul's day. Its magnificent buildings helped give it the name Antioch the Golden, the Queen of the East. The main street was more than four miles long, paved with marble, and lined on both sides by marble colonnades. Antioch was the only city in the ancient world at that time that had its streets lighted at nighttime. Warren Wearsby goes on to write this. He says, because it had a busy port and was a center for luxury and culture, Antioch attracted all kinds of people, including wealthy retired Roman officials who spent their days uh, hanging out in the baths or gambling at the races. With its large cosmopolitan population and its great commercial and political power, Antioch presented to the church an exciting opportunity for evangelism. That's pretty well said. It's a nice summary of that city. Something else that's important to know, it was a very worldly and very wicked city. Wicked, maybe only second to Corinth. 
there were plenty of bars all over town, temple prostitution, uh, prostitutes all over the place. It was a pretty wicked city. But it was also a very strategic city for spreading the gospel. I'm going to put this map back on here. I want you to take a look at this again. According to verse 20, some Christian men from Cyprus and Cyrene began doing something very unique, groundbreaking in the city of Antioch. So they came from this island of Cyprus, not too far away, but some of them came all the way from North Africa across the Mediterranean to Antioch, and these Christian men from Cyprus and Cyrene noticed what they did that was revolutionary. It's right there in verse 20. It said they began speaking to Greeks also, telling them the good news about the Lord Jesus. Well, from a 21st century Western perspective, we might say, well, big deal. What's so important about that? What's so revolutionary about that? Well, this may not seem like a big deal to you, but it was a huge deal. You see, up until that point, Christians had only been leading Jews to salvation in Christ. That's one of the main reasons why Jerusalem had been the launch pad for Christianity. Jerusalem was the launch pad for Judaism, and so it made sense for Jerusalem to be the launch pad of Christianity as well. But Jesus Christ creates a strategic shift here in Acts chapter 11. You see, Jerusalem had been the effective launch pad for the Christian church to reach Israel for Christ. But Antioch would now become the effective launch pad to reach the world for Christ. This is a critical chapter in the spreading of the gospel recorded in the book of Acts. Unlike Christ's followers in Acts chapters 1 through 7, these men from Cyprus and Cyrene came to Antioch and they didn't just share the gospel with Jews. Unlike Christ's followers in Acts chapter 8, these men in Antioch weren't just sharing the gospel with Samaritans, half-Jews. Unlike Peter in the prior chapter, chapter 10, these men in Antioch weren't just sharing the gospel with God-fearers, men who for the most part were Jewish. They weren't circumcised, but they believed in God, they practiced Judaism as much as they were allowed to, and they tried to follow the laws of Moses. Here, according to Acts 11, verse 20, these Christ-following men didn't hold back from sharing the gospel with anyone. They even shared the gospel with Greeks. Ah, This was earth-shattering in those days. There's a, a big thing going on here. It's so significant because the Greeks referred to here were complete pagans. You might call them complete heathens. They had never stepped foot in a synagogue. They didn't know anything about Judaism. These guys were out there at the various temples worshiping these false Greek and Roman gods. These were men that likely spent their weekends getting drunk in the local taverns and shacking up with the temple prostitutes because the local uh, uh, temple of choice for men in Antioch was the temple to Daphne. Daphne was like the lover of the god Apollo, and so how would we worship Daphne? Obviously, we worship Daphne by having sex with temple prostitutes. This is the kind of lifestyle these so-called Greeks were coming out of. 
And so when the gospel of Jesus Christ is shared with these complete heathens that had never stepped foot in a synagogue and knew next to nothing about God and lived a very perverse pagan lifestyle, this was a huge moment in the life of the Christian church. These were not God-fearing men they were leading to Christ. These were not moral men. These were not even good men. They were pagans. Pagans who desperately needed to hear and be transformed by the power of the gospel. Some Christian men in Antioch were willing to stick their necks out and do what had never been done before in the short history of the Christian church. To lead complete heathens to salvation. No matter how awkward or uncomfortable it was, no matter how much it felt like the odds were stacked against them, no matter the cost to their own reputations, they shared the good news of Jesus with their neighbors who were furthest from God. And look what happened in verse 21. The Lord's hand was with them, and a great number of people believed and turned to the Lord. Wow, that's pretty cool. Now, Men who had worshipped many gods began worshipping the one true God. Men who had completely ignored God's word began following God's word. Men who had never stepped foot inside a church service became active members of a church. Men who had spread moral and spiritual darkness in their city became salt and light in their city. Only the gospel of Jesus Christ can transform men like that. It was all because a handful of Christians were bold enough to introduce them to Jesus Christ. Now I want you to look at the Antioch Church Phase 2. It begins in verse 22 here in Acts chapter 11. We read beginning in verse 22. News of this reached the ears of the church at Jerusalem and they sent Barnabas to Antioch When he arrived and saw the evidence of the grace of God, he was glad and encouraged them all to remain true to the Lord with all their hearts. He was a good man, full of the Holy Spirit and faith, and a great number of people were brought to the Lord. Hmm. Now what was going on in Antioch? It was so revolutionary that word of it spread 300 miles south all the way to Jerusalem. And the church leaders in Jerusalem, knew that they needed to send someone to check it out, to see if this is legit, what's going on in Antioch, what they had heard about. And so they knew just the man for the job, good old Barnabas. His given name was Joseph, but early in the book of Acts, we learn that the early church nicknamed him Barnabas, which means son of encouragement. They knew that the son of encouragement was the man for the job, so they sent him 300 miles north to check out what was going on in Antioch. Barney accepted the mission, and according to verse 23, when he arrived in Antioch, and he saw the evidence of the grace of God, he was glad, and he encouraged them all to remain true to the Lord with all their hearts. Barnabas was a good man, full of the Holy Spirit and full of faith. Well, based on what we read later in the book of Acts about certain Jewish Christians 
giving Gentile Christians a hard time about not eating kosher food and not getting circumcised and not obeying all the Old Testament laws, I think there's a really good chance that these Gentile Christians in Antioch were asking some important, Christian, some important questions after they gave their lives to Christ. Questions like, will Christians outside of Antioch ever accept us? The Jewish Christians know we haven't been circumcised. They know we've never stepped foot inside a synagogue. They know the kind of lives we live. Will they ever accept us? In answer to their question, the son of encouragement stepped into the church and answered with a resounding, Yes, you will be accepted. You have been accepted by Jesus Christ and you'll be accepted by the church of Jesus Christ as well. You see, the church accepted Saul, even though Saul had murdered Christians and had persecuted Jesus Christ. If Jesus Christ could accept Saul and bring him into the church and Christians could accept Saul and bring him into the church, then certainly the church would accept and bring in these former pagans as well. He allows them to rest assured that Jesus Christ and the church would both accept them. But he does encourage them with these words saying, you need to keep growing in your faith and remaining true to the Lord with all your hearts. Notice what it says at the end of verse 24 about the results of Barnabas's ministry. It says, a great number of people were brought to the Lord. Now, if the passage had stopped there, we would probably draw the conclusion that this church in Antioch was good to go, right? You think about what we've read so far. According to verse 21, the Lord's hand was with them. A great number of people believed and turned to the Lord. According to verse 24, a good man who was full of the Holy Spirit and faith was helping to take the church to the next level. And as a result, a great number of people were brought to the Lord. This church seems to have been firing on all cylinders. Don't you think? I think so. But evidently, Barnabas didn't think so. Because he takes probably as much as a month, maybe longer, to leave the church and find someone else who can help him build the church even better than he could on his own. And that takes us to the Antioch Church, phase 3. Let's pick up in verse 25 here in Acts chapter 11. We read, Then Barnabas went to Tarsus to look for Saul. And when he found him, he brought him to Antioch. So for a whole year, Barnabas met with Saul and the church and taught great numbers of people. The disciples were called Christians first at Antioch. What a great passage. They were called Christians first at Antioch. It had probably been around seven years since Barnabas had spent time with Saul back in Jerusalem when he had brought him to the Apostle Peter and to Jesus' half-brother James. But Barnabas knew that Saul had been chosen and equipped by Jesus Christ to reach Gentiles with the gospel. He knew in his spirit that Saul could take the Antioch church further than he could ever take the church by himself. So even though it was a 150-mile journey to Tarsus from Antioch, Barnabas believed the trip was well worth the effort. Barnabas left Antioch. 
And if he took the land route, he did travel 150 miles to Tarsus to find Saul and bring him back with him to Antioch. It might not have been easy to find Saul, I don't know for sure, but Barnabas eventually found him there in Tarsus. He brings him back to Antioch, and notice what it says in verse 26. It says, for a whole year, Barnabas and Saul met with the church and taught great numbers of people. And don't miss this last sentence in verse 26. The disciples were called Christians first there in Antioch. Do you remember what Jesus said to his disciples before he went to heaven? It's recorded for us in Matthew chapter 28, verses 18 through 20. Before he ascended into heaven, uh, he gave them a charge. We call it the Great Commission. He gathered his disciples together on that mountain, and he said this. He said, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them. In the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit and teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you and surely I am with you always to the very end of the age. Now I want you to notice what Jesus does not say here. He doesn't say therefore go and make converts of all nations. He doesn't say that. He says he doesn't say go and make just believers of all nations. He doesn't tell us to go lead people in a sinner's prayer and then pat them on the back and say good luck with that and take off and find someone else to do the same thing with. He doesn't say dunk them and drop them, does he? We don't just baptize someone and say see ya. He says go and make disciples. That word disciples means learners, students, ones that are mentored by their teacher. And so notice that Jesus says that, make disciples of all nations, baptizing them and teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. Barnabas knew that Jesus wasn't interested in making converts. He was interested in building disciples, students, learners, followers of Christ who would grow in their faith and become more and more mature, more and more like Jesus in the way they think, in the way that they talk, in the way they act, and in the way they love God and people. And who better to disciple these baby Christians that used to be complete pagan Greeks, who better to disciple them than the man chosen by Jesus Christ himself to become the apostle to the Gentiles? The man who would go on to write half the books of the New Testament, Saul of Tarsus. So Barnabas put in the time and the effort necessary to help the Antioch church make it to the next level. He found Saul in Tarsus. He brings him back with him to Antioch. And together, Barnabas and Saul meet with the church and teach great numbers of people. And I don't think it's any coincidence that the followers of Christ are called Christians first in Antioch. Now, why were Jesus' followers in Antioch the first to be called Christians? Many Bible scholars and students of the Word have asked that question for the, per, for the past 2,000 years. Why were they called Christians first there? Well, for starters, it's important to note that this was most likely not a name that Jesus' followers gave themselves. Non-Christians were most likely the ones who coined this term for Christ's followers there in Antioch. Up until this point in the book of Acts, Luke has referred to Christ's followers by a few different names, but never Christian. 
Luke referred to them uh, in chapter 6, verse 1, as disciples. He called them in chapter 9, verse 13, saints. He called them brothers in uh, chapter 1, verse 16, and again in chapter 9, verse 30. He called them believers in chapter 10. He called them those who were being saved in chapter 2. He called them people of the way in chapter 9, verse 2. And so the non-believers in Antioch were most likely the ones who coined this term for the followers of Christ. And they might have intended that name Christian to be a criticism, basically calling them a bunch of little Christs or a little Christ clones or something like that. But in all likelihood, it wasn't a derogatory term. It was simply the way they described those followers of Christ. Let me put a couple examples on the screen for you here. Back in those days, if someone was a follower of Herod, they would call them Herodian Oi which meant Herodians, followers of Herod. If someone was a big fan and follower of Caesar, they would call that person Kaisar Yaunoi, which means Caesar's people. So it was very natural for those uh, pagan Romans to refer to Christians as Christianoi, which means Christ's people. That's what they call them. They are Christ's people. And so the Christians, the believers and followers of Christ there in Antioch said, you know what, I don't, I don't mind that term. And it, they adopted it for themselves once they started being called that, and it kind of spread. And here we are 2,000 years later still being called Christians. You see, outsiders who observed those followers of Christ in Antioch noticed that their lives were all about Jesus Christ. Uh, their lives were all about him. Christ was first on their lips. Christ was first in their actions. Christ was first in their worship. It reminds me of the wonderful morning prayer uh, written by St. Patrick. Uh, this uh, last month, just a couple weeks ago, we celebrated St. Patrick's Day, and many people were posting uh, this portion of the prayer from St. Patrick. It's such a, a beautiful morning prayer. He wrote, Christ with me. Christ before me, Christ behind me, Christ in me, Christ beneath me, Christ above me, Christ on my right and Christ on my left, Christ when I lie down, Christ when I sit down, Christ when I arise, Christ in the heart of every man who thinks of me, Christ in the mouth of everyone who speaks of me, Christ in every eye that sees me, Christ in every ear that hears me, I arise today. Isn't that a marvelous prayer? So it was no coincidence that Jesus' followers in Antioch were the first to be called Christians. They were the first to freely share the gospel with all people, regardless of their socioeconomic, ethnic, or moral differences. Sounds a lot like Jesus, doesn't it? Regardless of how unchurched they were, regardless of how godless they were, regardless of how immoral they were, they shared Jesus with them. But it was much more than that. Notice that the citizens of Antioch who followed Christ didn't start, well, let me say it this way, step back. It wasn't the citizens of Antioch who called the followers of Christ Christians until Paul came and began ministering in that church. Until Paul got on board, they weren't called Christians, it seems. And so what was it about Paul being there? It caused them to coin that term Christians for those believers. Well, what were they doing, Paul and Barnabas, when they worked together? They were equipping those believers to live out their faith every 
single day. So here's the takeaway. To live up to the name Christian, you and I need to do both. We need to be radical in our evangelism, reaching beyond social, economic, and religious barriers to introduce people to Jesus Christ. And once they accept Him, we have to disciple them, helping them to build a brand new life centered on Jesus Christ. Christ on my right, Christ on my left. Christ when I lie down, Christ when I sit down, Christ when I arise, Christ in the heart of every man who thinks of me, Christ in the mouth of everyone who speaks of me, Christ in every eye that sees me, Christ in every ear that sees me. Wow, ear sees me. That is a very talented ear. I meant to say Christ in every ear that hears me. If anyone ever asks you, what is a Christian? Tell him that. That's a Christian. I'm all about Jesus Christ. He's what I talk about. He's who I think about. He's the one in my heart. He's the number one, very center of my priorities in life. That's what it means to be a Christian. That is a Christian. Well, I want to share with you three life lessons that I think we can pull from our study today. And we'll dive right in. Life lesson number one. If you are a Christian, you have to think, act, and share Christ outside of the box. What is outside of the box? Well, the church will say today is the box. We've got to share Christ and talk about Christ and live for Christ outside of the box that we call the church building. I don't want you to miss something very significant about the missionaries who left Jerusalem and took the gospel 300 miles north to Antioch. They weren't trained and sent out by the church as missionaries, were they? Why did they go outside of Jerusalem and start spreading the gospel? Because they were kicked out of Jerusalem, right? They were running for their lives. They weren't coming from missionary school. They were from the school of run for our lives. They were being persecuted, so they took off. And as they took off, wherever they stopped running, that's where they told people about Jesus. Some stopped running in Samaria, so they told the Samaritans about Jesus. Some stopped running in Judea, so they told the people in Judea about Jesus. Some didn't stop running for 300 miles. They end up in Antioch, so who do they tell about Jesus? The people of Antioch. It's critical You don't just share Christ and talk about Christ and pray to Christ inside the box of the church building. Oh, you don't have to be a trained missionary. Just take Jesus with you wherever you go. Take him to work. Take him to school. Uh, Take him on vacation. Take him by all means to your family gatherings. Wherever you go, take Jesus with you. Don't wait for me to schedule an evangelistic outreach. You go and start sharing Jesus with those outside of the box. Remember, wherever you go, that's where you are. (laughs) So wherever you are, share Jesus there. Life lesson number two. You need a Barnabas in your life, a faithful, spirit-filled Christian who will encourage you to love and serve Christ with all your heart and will stand with you as you do. We all need at least one Barnabas in our lives, don't we? We all do. 
And there are so many great Barneys and so many great Barnitas in our church family. There's so many of them. We have a very loving and encouraging Christian family at Impact. Our church is a great place to receive the encouragement you need to grow in your faith and in your obedience to Christ. So please, don't isolate yourself from your church family. Make sure you're fellowshipping with your church family and receiving that encouragement that you need and that I need so that we can continue to grow in our faith and serve Jesus Christ with all that we've got. Well, finally, life lesson number three. Just like Barnabas and Saul, we are much better and stronger together. So don't be a lone ranger, Christian. When God calls you to do something for Him, enlist at least one other Christian to do it with you. We're going to see in the weeks to come that Antioch became Saul's home church. The man whose name was shifted to Paul just a few chapters later. His home base, his home church, wasn't in Jerusalem. It wasn't even in Tarsus. His home base and his home church was right there in the city of Antioch. It became his launching pad for reaching two continents with the gospel of Jesus Christ. Amen? And it's critical how he got there. Barnabas went and got him and brought him back to do ministry with him. How come you and I don't do the same? God has been convicting me a bit more recently about the importance of doing ministry together with others. I do a lot of ministry solo. I figure it just comes with the territory of being a small church pastor. You know what? If something needs to be done, I'll roll up my sleeves and do it. And a lot of times I don't ask anyone to join me in doing that. But God's really convicted me recently. Whenever possible, I need to bring someone along to do ministry with me. And so back in February, I brought four of our men along to to preach the Word of God to us on Sunday mornings. Wasn't that a blessing this last month as we had that impact preaching team? Over the last few weeks, I've been going over to Willie and Gree's home after church. Uh, Willie, as many of you know, you've been praying for him. He's been flat on his back much much of the last three weeks uh, having uh, this terrible pain in his lower back he's dealing with. And so... Uh, Me and another gentleman from the church have been going over and taking communion to him together. There are any number of things that I could do, and God says, No, I don't want you to do it by yourself, Dane. Bring others to do ministry with you. It's critical. So whatever it is that God asks you to do for him, recruit at least one other person to do it with you. There's a reason when Jesus sent out the 72, he sent them out two by two. There's a reason when he sent out his 12 apostles into the towns ahead of him, he sent them out two by two. Jesus set a wonderful example of doing ministry in pairs. And so make sure, don't just do it on your own. You recruit, you enlist at least one other Christian to do it with you. The 19th century evangelist D.L. Moody had a policy of giving new Christians small tasks to do in the church as soon as possible after they were saved. Whether it was handing out hymnals or setting up chairs, he would give them jobs to do. And he wisely said this. He said, It is better to put ten men to work than to do the work of ten men. I need to remember that. And you need to remember that as well. Learn the lesson from Barnabas. You grab another 
faith-filled, mature Christian to serve with you. Or if you're doing something small, just grab a baby Christian to do it with you. doesn't even have to be at times someone who's really mature in their faith, but someone that you can spend time with and do ministry together because two are better than one and a cord of three strands is not easily broken. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we come to you thanking you for the privilege of studying your word today. Help us to follow in the footsteps of Saul, who spent as much time with you as needed to prepare for the great ministry ahead. Help us to learn the lesson from the Christians in Antioch, O God. We don't know the names of those men from Cyprus and Cyrene who began sharing the gospel with Greeks, but Lord, their impact sent ripples through eternity. Thank you, Lord, for their boldness in reaching outside the box to share the the message of Jesus Christ with anyone who would listen. Help us to follow in their footsteps. Help us to learn the lesson from Barnabas to not do ministry alone, but to recruit others to do ministry with them because we can be so much better and more effective together than we are on our own. And Lord Jesus, help us to learn the lesson from Paul to be responsive to the call of ministry and go wherever you tell us to go and stay whenever you call us to stay. And Lord, not just to create converts, and win people to Christ and then abandon them, Lord, but to take the time and put in the effort to build disciples who grow in their faith and serve you with all their hearts. Oh, God, bless us in our work of discipleship at Impact Christian Church as we build men and women who serve you, who love you, who trust you, and carry out your mission for the glory of God. In Jesus' name, amen. May God bless you as you serve our Lord this week. Uh, We have some exciting work of ministry to do. I don't know all that the Lord has in mind for you to do this week, uh, but I know it's something important. I know it's something meaningful. It's something life-changing. So do whatever the Lord asks you to do this week for Him and the building of Christ's kingdom. And whenever possible, bring another Christian alongside you to do that ministry with you side by side. If you've never made a decision for Christ, I encourage you to make that decision today. I want to be your Barnabas today, encouraging you to give your life to Jesus Christ and to serve him for the rest of your life. If you give your life to Jesus Christ, he will wash your sins away. He'll give you a relationship with the Father in heaven. He'll put his spirit inside of you to guide you, to be your counselor and comforter every day of your life. And he will build and prepare a place for you in heaven, ready for you. When this life ends, oh, if you've never accepted Christ, I encourage you to A, admit that you are a sinner. B, believe that Jesus died on the cross for your sins. And C, choose to begin following him today. And if you've made that decision, please reach out to us at the church office, 760-246-4100 or email us at info at greaterimpact.cc. We'd love to talk with you about Christ. We'd love to pray with you. And we'd love to set up a time for you to get baptized as soon as possible. If we can be a blessing to you today, please reach out. Thank you so much for joining us. We'll be taking communion in just a moment if you want to stay with us. Uh, But for those of you that need to run, God bless you as you trust and love and serve our Lord Jesus Christ this week.